Hello, this is Dr. Daniel John Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry. Today is the 1st of November, 2019. That makes it All Saints Day. I'm going to continue my arc on a discussion of epigenetics. We did the first introduction a few days back, and hopefully you have listened to that already. Um, I tried to make these successive and in sequence so that from each preceding episode, when I'm on an arc of a particular discussion pattern, you will have the information that you'll be able to use to unlock some of the details from subsequent uh, chapters or episodes. Uh, But they do stand alone because I do know that people don't necessarily listen to things in order, uh, certainly not sequentially all the time, nor do they have the time. So um, let's just get back into this. I'm talking about epigenetics. This is Authentic Biochemistry, the podcast that everyone should be listening to uh, because I give you uh, a discussion of papers that are published in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. I am a PhD biochemist and molecular geneticist. My specialty is lipid biochemistry. I've also worked in neuroscience extensively. Today, again, we're doing a general discussion of the phenomena in eukaryotic nuclei, it's not exclusive to eukaryotic nuclei, but it's the one that we're talking about, called epigenetics, which basically gets down to a discussion of alteration of gene expression without specifically changing the nucleotide sequence. So the kinds of things I'm talking about, of course, are chromatin alterations, chromatin including nucleosomes, And the chromatin that gets altered can be both DNA, particularly on CPG islands that are coalescing coordinated in places like promoter regions, enhancer regions, and between different intron-exon junctions in genes that are found wrapped, coded, and prepared in chromatin. So there are DNA modifications, such as methylation on a cytosine residue, And then there are various histone modifications. Those are the basic proteins that help create the nucleosome. And specifically, our lysine residues within the histones, you get methylation and you get acetylation. There are lots of other chromatin modifications, which are also covalent, but those two are the major ones. So DNA methylation can either increase or decrease transcription. So that's a transcriptional control. Once the RNA is synthesized, the second level of epigenetic control happens with microRNA. We're going to get into this microRNA at some level right now, at some some depth. MicroRNAs, because they are sequence homologous to mRNAs, can block the translation of those mRNAs and therefore suppress protein synthesis at a very specific level. The microRNA then has homology to a messenger RNA. And so you get nucleotide-nucleotide cooperation so that the RNAs will form a duplex. When you have duplex RNA, that is not the normal molecular species for translation that is synthesis of polypeptide. At the, either at the polyribosome in the cytoplasm or in the endoplasmic reticulum. <laughs> so that suppresses 
the expression of that particular transcript, and therefore the protein level drops. All right. Now, you can also get RNA, microRNA, mediated control of transcription because you can get DNA-RNA heteroduplexes formed back in the chromatin. It's yet another kind of epigenetic control, but that's also regular genetic control as well because messenger RNA can also block transcription of more messenger RNA of the same sequence homology because a DNA-RNA hybridization making heteroduplexes in the nucleus, thus suppressing any nascent mRNA of that particular molecular species. But that's not so much epigenetics, it's just normal control at the molecular level. <clears throat> so let's talk about RNAi. So RNAi, I there stands for interference. It was actually first described by Balcom and uh, Hamilton back in 1999, where they found uh, RNAs that were about 25 nucleotides long, and they were calling them sense and antisense RNAs because of the direction of the sequence. So sense RNA, five prime to three prime, is a normal way for that RNA to be translated. But if you reverse that sequence and synthesize an RNA that goes three prime to five prime, and you have both molecules in proximity, they can form a duplex. And that duplex RNA, again, is not a substrate for translation. What you do have then is a duplex RNA, which looks to the eukaryotic cell as a potential um, replicative form of certain kinds of viruses. There are, are, are double-stranded RNA replicated forms of viruses. So when the cell detects that, there's a pattern recognition sequence that goes on, which includes the use of toll-like receptors, which induce enzymes called RNases. They're endoribonucleic uh, uh, and lytic interactions that break down that double-stranded RNA. And the, again, that's a defense mechanism against virus in a replicated form is double-stranded RNA. Some viruses have a replicated form. So whenever you get that in a cell, then that looks like a potential danger or pathogen, and it can be removed. <clears throat> so anyways, RNAi interference was first described by Balkman Hamilton in 99. And then a year later, they found a, a, a group by, led by Zamor found double-stranded RNA, and that was found in uh, Drosophila. And there they found very close uh, size that, that Balkum found in plants, about 21, 23 nucleotides. So the way it works is there's an initiation step and this RNA interference mechanism. Um, initiation steps involves the synthesis of long double-stranded RNA. Then there's an enzyme called Dicer, which cleaves the double-stranded RNA into those very small 21 nucleotide small interfering RNAs or SI RNAs. And those have a two nucleotide three prime overhang. Then there's an effector step, which forms an RNA induced silencing complex, which is called a RISC, R-I-S-C. And this SI RNA guides the RISC to target messenger RNAs. And then the risk degrades the target messenger RNA. <clears throat> okay, so that's the way it works. That's the way RNA interference functions. So you end up destroying target RNA.
okay? And that RNA would otherwise have been translated to polypeptide. So microRNAs are, again, to repeat, short 20 to 24 nucleotide in length, non-coding RNAs, and they're involved in post-transcriptional regulation of gene expression in multicellular organisms. And they do this by affecting both the stability and the translatability of nascent messenger RNA. Micrornas then are transcribed by an RNA polymerase II as part of a capped and polyadenylated primary transcript. So they're called pre-microRNAs, and they are either protein coding or non-coding at that point. The primary transcript, when it becomes cleaved by the enzyme called Drosha ribonuclease 3, that's an enzyme, it produces approximately a 70 nucleotide stem loop precursor, which is now the pre-microRNA. That's further cleaved by a cytoplasmic ribonuclease called Dicer. So first Drosha, then Dicer. And that generates a mature microRNA and antisense microRNA. So you get two products. The mature microRNA is incorporated into an RNA-inducing silencing complex. As I just said, that's the risk complex. And you already heard the rest of the story, basically. That recognizes the target messenger RNA through, it's essentially kind of an imperfect base pairing, but still base pairing with the microRNA. And most commonly, it results in translational inhibition because it can't be read by the polyribosome, by the ribosomal RNA and transfer RNA complex to synthesize polypeptide. Or sometimes you just get destabilization of the target messenger RNA and it's degraded rapidly because it doesn't look like a healthy messenger RNA to the cell, so ribonucleases destroy it. So you've got epigenetics and then you've got microRNA regu regulation. You've got two different levels. The epigenetics is basically at the transcriptional level, and that includes, uh, again, methylation and acetylation. Heavily methylated DNA is basically inactive. Heavily or at least demethylated and acetylated DNA uh, in nucleosomes tends to be active for transcription. Now, there are a lot of caveats, and there's a lot of regulation between those two extremes, but that's basically what happens. And that's whole gene expression. That's not very specific, although it's specific enough in that if the methylation is on CPG islands, a particular enhancer or promoter region of specific genes, obviously those are the genes that would be affected, um, for example, by decreasing their expression. <clears throat> so there are all kinds of enzymes which um, transfer methyl groups or remove methyl groups, transfer acetate groups or remove them. And I talked about them in the first episode of this discussion. We're not going to go through it again right here. Um, there's also a lot of this post-transcriptional repression. Uh, and again, there's, there's messenger RNA cleavage, which can go on. There's translational repression, which can go on because of the risk complexes. And then there's also deadenylation, and that causes a destabilization of the nation microRNA so it doesn't get expressed in the polypeptide via the translational machinery. So how common is this? Well, here's, a, here's like three really short um, one-liners from abstracts. Paper published in the International Journal of Clinical Experimental Pathology back in 2015. Uh, that paper talks about microRNA-145, 
suppressing cell migration and invasion by targeting a paxillin gene in human colorectal cancer cells. Second one in a paper published in Carcinogenesis, also in that year, 2015, August of that year, reports on that same MER-145, that's a microRNA-145, they call MERS. MER-145 suppresses the androgen receptor in prostate cancer cells, and it correlates to prostate cancer prognosis. So these are positive influences of microRNAs, you see? Another paper in PLOS One, also published in 2015. I just chose 2015 because I was moving through the years. Um, get, and also I want to just key in on one microRNA, MIR, M-I-R, 145. MIR 145 in that paper inhibited metastasis by targeting fascian actin bundling protein 1. That's F-A-B-P-1. And that is discovered or expressed or normally found in nasopharyngeal carcinomas. So those are three papers, one on carcinogenesis, one in the International Journal of Clinical Experimental Pathology, and the third one in PLOS One, all in 2015, which showed that MER-145 actually inhibited cancer. Okay? So you can see why the biomedical uh, industry and the field are very interested in this. Now, let's back up again and talk more um, what do I want to say precisely and more developed about what I mean by epigenetics? Now, so genetic and epigenetic mechanisms, of course, shape metabolic activity, and they can correspond to negatively produce a pathophysiological state. They can also remedy disease, as those, just those three MIR 145s demonstrated from the literature I told you about. Now, while the genome establishes the template for a developmental and a metabolic pattern or program, the adaptational phenomenon of epigenetics helps to produce a final phenotype. That latter epigenetic mechanism then is basically the subject of developmental and cell biology because uh, it controls gene expression specifically and also written large Epigenetics is a major mechanism in pathophysiology, that is disease. <clears throat> so we want to know about the biochemistry of the epigenetics because we're biochemists. And we know that that involves several covalent modifications of nuclear chromatin. And of course, nuclear chromatin is DNA plus the histone proteins. But it also is controlled at that post-transcriptional level. And that's that RNA-based silencing or interference, RNAi. So all those modifications can be reversibly administered by interactions or mechanisms of interactions with the genome. And it's caused by and results in a poor nutritional lifestyle. That's one way it can occur. And also there is a spatiotemporal pathological metastate, which has to do with living in an environment which is regulating gene expression in a sophisticated I want to say non-stochastic way, but pseudo-stochastic. It means it looks random, but it's not random. Uh, but it's applied to by the suppression or repress repressive control of specific adequacy of gene expression in specific tissues at specific time sequences and signatures. So epigenetics is very complicated, very elegant, very fine-tuned 
to minor changes, which I mentioned before, immediate changes in the environment right there in the cell and mediated changes as changes over time, which are the result of several things happening upstream or proximal to the original or from, from the original epigenetic change. And then downstream that process to a distal event, which can continue an epigenetic alteration and it can be inherited like inheriting a, a methylome or inheriting an acetylome or inheriting specific microRNAs that were recently created out of the chromatin, or they can be produced de novo and disappear next round of cell division. So it's a very complicated, essentially sculpting of the genome which results in uh, alternate gene expression, which ultimately then shapes and alters the trajectory of the cells, the tissues, the organs, and the living organism through space and time until death. So I can't emphasize more how epigenetics is a very, very important paradigmatic phenomena. That's something rare or esoteric. So among those modifications, now let's get a little bit more detail. The carbon-5 atom on cytosine residues found in certain canonical CPG islands as clusters of CPG in DNA, uh, often associated with promoter elements, they become, those that C5 atom can be methylated, acetylated, ubiquitinylated, phosphorylated. And likewise, the cohering histones can be modified the same way. Histones more often get all of that ornamentation, methylation, acetylation, ubiquitinylation, sumoylation, phosphorylation, um, succinylation, okay? Whereas the cytosine, carbon-5 cytosine atom, is usually only methylated, but that is uh, making it more uh, simple than it is. Actually, that C5 atom can be modified in other ways, and some of them are the ones I just described to you, which occurs to lysine residues and histones. So the, mechani the mechanisms include then, okay, how do you, how you carry out the result? Because okay, so what's the event has to have a catalyst and the, and the catalysts are methyltransferases, acetyltransferases, acyltransferases, because you can remove, you can move around entire acyl groups. Then of course there are kinases, add phosphate, phosphatases remove it. Then there are demethylases, deacetylases, such as the HDAX, histone deacetylases one class of which are the sirtuins, which I've talked about at great length. Then there are E3 ubiquitin ligases. And indeed, there are a lot of RNA enzymes, which tailor the transcript, right? So the substrates for all those reactions are either chromatin, in the case of DNA methylation, uh, or in histone modification. Or in the case of the RNase activities, often it's double-stranded uh, RNA, often messenger RNA, or duplexes of messenger RNA with microRNAs, right? Now, what are the like substrates for all this? Well, there's S-adenosylmethionine, uh, abbreviated SAM or ADOMET. And that's recognized basically, as I mentioned in the last episode, the nuclear methylation agent. So you obtain that methyl group though on SAM from what? From folic acid derivatives, okay? Particularly N5-methyl tetrahydrofolate. 
But that, of course, is in a sequence of interactions moving around that C1 unit at different oxidation states between the various types of folic derivatives, okay, which we can talk about in detail when we talk about folic acid, maybe in one of the arcs of one of these uh, lectures. Now, acetyl-CoA, which is an intermediate in metabolism, a very important intermediate metabolism, such as in fatty acid synthesis and beta-oxidation of fatty acids, and if you can't get more important than that, uh, or in cholesterologenesis, for example, acetyl-CoA is the acetylation agent. And it's, again, uh, very important in chromatin-associated histone acetylation. And when histones get acetylated, and that, that process is mediated over time, we call that, we give it kind of a uh, romantic term, we call that chromatin remodeling. And that generally, that acetylation opens up the DNA so that RNA polymerase too can get in there and transcription can occur. So we say that acetylation enhances in a general way gene expression downstream from wherever that ligand receptor mediated activation of the complex occurred. And that can even be an association with the ubiquitin proteasomal pathway. Okay. So there's a lot of intense detail going on because once you make a modification of a protein, like a histone, then you can further modify that protein and further elaborate its event ontology downstream from the event. Now, interestingly, it can also work to affect interactions, molecular interactions upstream from that event, thus shutting off or enhancing the flow rate of that pattern of events, which can either increase global gene expression or decrease global gene expression via the acetylation of those histones going from heterochromatin to euchromatin, for example. So you have nuclear-associated post-translational modifications. That's like acetylation and methylation. And again, it's in histones, and it, it basically is with lysine residues. The major effect of all this is you have pronounced change in a physical chemical accessibility for all the DNA binding proteins that not only involve um, nation transcription, when you're making a transcriptional bubble, for example, via chromatin remodeling, it also affects what? DNA replication and DNA recombination and DNA repair. All of those DNA molecular events are therefore subject to the event horizon ontology of epigenetic phenomena. That's a lot to sink in, I realize, but it's very important to understand. And that's why I like to spend a lot of time talking about it. It's a biochemical process yeah, from the beginning to the end. So again, more about, I want you to understand the physiology of this. Epigenetics. Remember, every cell is an identical or almost identical copy of a nuclear genome. And that's where all the DNA is, right? But the expression of those genes is controlled by the activity usually of a promoter region, a very simple case. Promoters are controlled themselves. That's that DNA acting in cis. The promoters themselves are controlled by a vast array of transacting factors, including things like proteins and lipids and carbohydrates, which bind to DNA and, and nucleotides, which bind to DNA, and they induce some kind of 
covalent modification. Those transacting factors can help regulate a, a covalent modification of the chromatin, thus enhancing, stimulating, maintaining, or decreasing the activity of transcription on specific genomic loci. So again, the most common modification here, it was, it was discovered a long time ago now, is the methylation of those cytosine residues on CPG islands. So methylation of a promoter DNA typically, particularly hypermethylation, shuts transcription up, and they call that silencing. And that silencing can be transferred mitotically, like cell division, and meiotically, that is making, um, you know, having, having sexual reproduction, right? Um, generating haploid gametes. So either way, that methylation pattern can be transferred hereditarily. The factors which control the methylation then, of course, whatever those factors are, such as environmental stimulus, directly control gene expression. Okay. So besides all that phenomenon, gene expression is controlled by chromatin remodeling, which we've already talked about. You know, there's a change of histones via those covalent modifications. And then the entire ubiquitin pathway. So it's a, it's a set within a nested set of complex but not complicated interactions, which actually produce and yield and pull up the sequence of events. Sorry for that, using the word sequence there, because we're talking about DNA sequence and protein sequence. But that sequence of events, right, that linear teleological from beginning to end um, series of events, well, I use series rather than sequence, that results in the overall organismal expression of genes which shape the phenotype of the organism and its ability to exist in the environment. Essentially, from uh, borrowing from existential philosophy, it, epigenetics allows all of the activity of the nucleus to be in a state of being there being there. In other words, existing within an environment and interacting within that environment in real time, just like an existing individual uh, occurs as being there in the world from the existentialist perspective, um, a la Heidegger. So all modifications to genes other than changes in the DNA sequence itself can be put under the huge umbrella of epigenetics. The epigenetic modifications include what I just talked about, addition to methyl groups, the DNA backbone, and then adding those groups, of course, changes the appearance and structure. And by that, I mean the physical chemical properties of that DNA. And all those changes can now affect how genes interact and with other molecules, for example, and all this going down, or I should say occurring in the cell nucleus. Now, there are some classical examples of this before any of the mechanisms were figured out. One of them was called parental imprinting. So parental imprinting is caused by the addition of a methyl group to DNA, and it's used on some genes to distinguish that gene copy inherited from the father, say, versus the mother. So that imprinting distinguishes each gene copy, thus providing additional information to the cell. So that performs what's known as copy prejudice for making certain proteins inherited from either the mother's genome or the father's genome. Now we're going to stop here and we're going to pick up on this in chapter three. Again, Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry on a Friday night, the 1st of November, 2019, saying bye for now.